0: We're back in Acts chapter 9 after we took a break uh, over uh, Holy Week. And if you were here last week, I mentioned, you know, we, we are focusing especially on the resurrection, and yet this is something we do all the time at community. This is what real Christians do every week. We, we acknowledge and we celebrate the resurrection, and in God's prov- providence, though, we have yet another text that is. Uh, focused on the benefits of Christ's resurrection for us. And so we get to continue on in that rejoicing of a conquered grave, of the hope of everlasting life, the hope of being yet again reunited with loved ones that we have had to say goodbye to. That's what we celebrate today. And that's what we study as well in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32 through the close of that chapter. The kingdom of the resurrection is our title for today's study. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon uh, Tanner, thus far the reading of God's holy word for us this day. Sometimes it's interesting to think uh, how strange our lives would be if a few key historical moments had played out a little differently. Imagine a world where John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and company uh, gathered together at uh, what we know as Independence Hall on July 4th, 1776. And indeed, they signed the Declaration of Independence, a stirring moment for the cause of the revolution. But then imagine with me, fast-forwarding just about a a year to October of 77 and what we know to be uh, the decisive turning point in the war which was the Battle of Saratoga in New York. But imagine, what if the British general, John Burgoyne, had not uh, surrendered himself and his troops to uh, the, uh, the uh, general of the uh, rebels, Horatio Gates, but instead the opposite had taken place. place. Gates surrendering to Burgoyne, Uh, That ostensibly could have been the end of the war. America as we know it today would be quite different, and so would our 4th of July picnics, if we had them at all. Uh, If we did acknowledge that day, it would only be to pay our respects to a noble but a failed mission, a dead ideal, a vision for a better future, but we would not be celebrating the reality of one. We could think the same thing about Easter, our celebration last Sunday. Are we simply remembering a historical event that actually has no ongoing significance for our lives? Do we pay tribute to a noble mission that Christ embarked on, and yet a mission that ultimately did not usher in a new creation? A mission that failed to accomplish its purpose was... Easter Sunday simply the vision for a better future, but not actually the reality of a better future. Well, our text today shows us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually accomplished something, actually did something for us today. Not just for Jesus, but for his people. And we doubt that from time to time, and so do. Did the believers at the time of Acts put yourself in their shoes, the very first Christians? Christ has been raised. He made good on his claim to be the resurrection and the life. But what about his claim that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life? Because they're looking around and, and well, even as we see in Acts 9, Christians, they're dying. Christians that believed in him. They're getting sick and they're dying. Maybe the resurrection Real as it was, actually had no practical or life-changing impact for them. Just like we can envision a world where independence was declared, but not won. Is that what the resurrection was? Well, no. As in our country, we actually celebrate the establishment of a new nation, a new world order. The resurrection was Jesus creating, constituting a new kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is best defined as the resurrection kingdom, where citizens are raised from death to life, first internally in their hearts, but then also in their bodies. And that was proven in breathtaking ways in this miraculous display before the eyes of believers in two. Towns, Lydda and Joppa in Acts 9. There's a pair of miracles performed by the Apostle Peter. Resurrection is the theme of each of these miracles because in each case, Peter utters this word Anastatheme, arise. It's the same Greek word that is used in the Gospel accounts anytime the writers are telling us of the resurrection. In one case, Peter raises a paralytic. A man that we could say was barely living any life worth mentioning. The other instance saves someone who is dead entirely. And friends, this is the hope of the new creation. In the new creation, life is worth the living because death is dead entirely. That's the hope of the new creation. Life will be worth the living because death is dead entirely. Uh, we look to Acts 9 here, verse 32, and we see uh, the, the, the focus has shifted. We were, uh, had a brief hiatus considering the Apostle Paul and his conversion. Now we're back to Peter, and he's nearing the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the city called Lydda, and it's close to Joppa where he will go to next. And there in Lydda he encounters saints, we're told, uh, in verse uh, thirty two he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda saints, the people who are called set apart by God holy, as God is holy. And he meets these Christians, in particular a, a paralytic man named Aeneas. Uh, we are not given much detail about him, except that he is a cripple and he 's been crippled for eight years, and the emphasis on the eight years is to to magnify the marvel of the miracle uh, that what happens is is not some Trick. It's not just some uh, medicine that's been given him. He has been living a lifeless life for eight years, bedridden for eight years, and yet immediately, as we'll see, the text emphasizes he gets up. Verse 34 Peter tells him to get up, and he does so immediately. In direct response to apostolic authority, the lame stand up. There's a connection with the miracle we read of in Acts 4 of the beggar outside the temple. And, uh, and what does Peter and John say? Silver and gold have I not, but what I have I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Remember, it was a double miracle. Do you remember that? It's not just that he was given the, uh, uh, the, the ability to walk again, but even the, the power and the strength to walk immediately. There's no atrophy in the muscles, even after years of disuse. Same thing happening here. Eight years on his bed, and yet now he's up. And that means he can take care of himself. Because up until this point, Aeneas is utterly dependent upon uh, everyone else for, for anything. For making his bed, making his meals, going to the bathroom. He needs help of all kinds. He is not dependent in any way. And yet Peter proves now that that's changed. His whole life has been changed because he gives him this simple task. What does he say? He says, Aeneas make your bed. And some parents here are thinking that indeed would be a miracle if when I said that to my uh, my children, they immediately got up and made their bed. The Greek word actually translated make your bed means spread for yourself. If you just translate it literally, Peter says, Aeneas, spread for yourself. And it was an idiom that could be in reference to make your own dinner or make your bed. And in the context of of this chapter i think makes the most sense to say he's referring to making his bed but the emphasis is emphasis is on the yourself bit that he can finally take care of himself that he can finally do something for himself there was nothing this man could do for himself and peter now is telling him to do his chores and he does them immediately but the striking thing in this section is Peter's initial comment. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Think about that. What is Peter saying? It's a profound statement because Peter's claiming that the Jesus who, who died and who was raised but now who ascended into heaven is still doing stuff. We believe as Christians that, that Jesus didn't just do something for us historically— But that he does something for us daily. That he is alive and well and with his people. Every day guiding us, guarding us, giving us what we need. All of God's grace to us is mediated through the living and ascended Savior. Peter is is claiming here that the very same Jesus that stepped out of the tomb on Easter Sunday is the Jesus that is giving Aeneas the power to step out of his bed that day. And his word to Aeneas ought to be the theme of our message as Christians in any and in every circumstance. Jesus heals you. Jesus saves you. That must be our sermon. Peter's deflecting attention from himself and he rightly places the focus on God. So whether we are literally preaching the gospel or whether we're simply giving a cup of cold water to somebody in need, our theme is Jesus Christ saves you. I'm going to say that to the whole world. Uh, That's not a lie, by the way, as some fastidious theological types have feared. How can we say Jesus Christ saves you? say that to all people, if we in fact do not know if they are elect and, and they have salvation or not, the statement is still true. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you are ever to be saved, it's because what? Jesus Christ saves you. He and he alone has done all the saving. And that's our job to tell the world. And just as it's his job to do the saving, it's also his job to give the gift of believing. Our job is simply to tell it. Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ saves you. You encounter somebody and they have all sorts of needs. You have all sorts of needs today. What do you need to hear? Jesus Christ heals me. Jesus Christ saves me. It's Christ and Christ alone. And if Peter had not made that so plain, then we would not have read as we, as we do in fact, read verse 35, that all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw it and turned to the Lord and said, we would read, they all turned to Peter If he had not made this so clear, I have a question for you today. Where are you turning? They turn to the Lord. Where are you turning? Are you turning to to someone or something else, someone other than Jesus, to to give you your your health or your happiness, your your salvation, your, your satisfaction? Are you looking to anything or anyone else other than Jesus Christ to give you what you stand in need of? Oftentimes, the person we turn to is none other than ourselves. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but, you know, we think we're all that. We compare ourselves to others, and we say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so, and and God must be pretty pleased with me. We think that sometimes we can offer to God such gifts, such graces, such service, such uh, faithfulness that he actually is in our debt. He owes us something like heaven. Friends, you and I, we must do the same thing. I I must wake up every day and when I think of what lies ahead in my day and, and struggles that I know I will face, obstacles that I know I will face, difficulties I know I will face, I must preach to myself, Jesus saves me. When I... Think of my sins that beset me, I must preach to myself, Jesus saves me. Even when I think of my successes or the things that people compliment me for or thank me for, well, then especially I must say, Jesus saves me. When I think of heaven and how I get there, what's my theme? Jesus saves me. It is His resurrection power. That secures my place in the resurrection kingdom. That's what Aeneas is learning here. It's him and it's nothing else. And so do you know that today? What is your hope from, for getting from this life, this world, to the next? And if your answer is anything other than Jesus Christ alone, it's wrong. It's a wrong answer. There's a 19th century Anglican bishop over in uh, Europe, uh, Taylor Smith. And he recounted um, going to the, the barber, uh, a barber who was uh, very talkative, as they tend to be, and he could barely get a word in edgewise. And yet, at one point, there was a lull in the conversation. And so he took that opportunity to try to share the gospel. And he asked his barber, whose name I think was Howl, uh, yeah, I believe it was in Wales then, Howl. And he asked Howl, um, Are you a religious man? And Howl replied, oh, I don't know if I am, Bishop. Well, then he put it this way to him, well, do you believe in God? Yes, I, I believe in God. Okay, well, then say, when you die and, and you meet with God, what would you tell him as to why you should spend blessed eternity with him? Barber said, well, I don't know, Bishop, I guess I would say I did my best. I always do my best, and I think God can ask nothing more from anyone than that he do his best did my best bishop Smith nodded he paid the man and as he was getting up he said you know how uh, you'll be in need of a haircut soon enough yourself and he kind of was embarrassed and he said well you know I'm so busy as a barber cutting everybody else's hair I don't have as much time to cut mine my own and Bishop Smith said well you know I have a few minutes why don't you sit down in the chair and I'll cut your hair the barber said no you don't you don't have to do that no really I, I, have, I have I have time We can do it right now. Well, you're not trained, said the barber. No, I'm not trained, but I'll do my best. The bishop said, sir, your best is not good enough for me. The bishop says, "I," and your best is not good enough for God. Jesus Christ saves you. Jesus Christ heals you. B.B. Warfield reminds us, there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot be accepted at all. And this is not true of us only when we first believe. It's just as true after we've believed, and it will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in behavior may be, it is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we must rest. Jesus Christ saves you. Well, so much for this first miracle with Aeneas. The second is similar to the first, though, with some significant differences. There are more details given about this individual. Uh, Tabitha, we're given two names for her. Dorcas would be the the Greek name. Tabitha is the Aramaic name. Uh, She is certainly a Christian as she's referred to as a disciple and she garners a wonderful reputation for herself as we're told in verse uh, 36 that she was full of good works and acts of Charity. In particular, it seems that her works were directed to the widows in Joppa. Verse 39, when Peter gets there, all the widows stood beside him weeping, and they're showing him the tunics and garments that Dorcas made for them while she was with them. Look at, look at all she had done. Look how she ministered to us. Look how she provided for our needs. And so Peter is summoned to the saints or by the saints to Joppa uh, on the account of the death of this disciple, Tabitha. It's hard to know why they wanted him to come. It's not as though they asked him to hurry up and come while she was on his deathbed. You remember the story of Lazarus. They they want Jesus to get there before he dies, and they're upset that he gets there after he dies. They don't go for Peter until after Tabitha's already dead. Uh, Did they perhaps think he could raise her from the dead? I'm not sure. Peter had never done anything like that before, and no apostle had. Maybe they just wanted him uh, to, to be part of the celebration of life service, the funeral. Look at this wonderful woman who has ministered in this way and, and come and rejoice with us. One commentator has pointed out, though, by leaving her in the upstairs room awaiting Peter's arrival seems to betray the fact that they are hoping for something more than his mere condolences. And that's what they get, isn't it? They get something far greater than consolation, they get resurrection. The first miracle that we've read, Peter raises a cripple, he gives life to a man who had no life worth living, but now he gives life to a woman who was dead entirely. And although Peter does not make the same bold declaration, Jesus Christ heals you, he still shows his uh, utter dependence on the Lord in in what he does, and that he prays before this miracle is performed. He knew that while Jesus had life In himself that he could give freely to any. Peter doesn't have that. And so he must beseech the one who is the resurrection and the life. To give it. The focus is on Jesus. And I've wondered if even the way that Luke records this story. Is meant to cause us to think about Jesus. Because Luke has told us that this dear saint has two names. Tabitha and Dorcas. Tabitha is the Aramaic name. And that is the name that Peter uses when he goes to speak to her. He, he commands her to get up by addressing her with this Aramaic name. And he says, Tabitha, arise. Verse 40, Tabitha, arise. Does it sound familiar? I think it would have to the hearers of this book of Acts when it was initially written. I think it would have sounded familiar as this story was recounted because years earlier there was a man by the name of Jairus who had a daughter that was sick and he believes that this man, Jesus from Nazareth can do amazing things and so in his faith, weak though it is he goes to Jesus and says come heal my daughter and of course you know the story Jesus is delayed on the way and by the time he gets to Jairus' daughter she's already dead but he tells them do not fear, do not weep And he takes her by the hand, and he speaks to her, and he says, Little girl, arise. But he speaks, of course, in Aramaic, and little girl in Aramaic is Talitha. Talitha kumi. Peter now, Tabitha kumi. The resurrection power that belongs to Christ We see now has been bestowed upon Peter. The connections don't stop there. Peter is echoing not only the works of Jesus but of the great prophets Elijah and Elisha who also brought back the dead to life. And so in performing these miracles, he's proving himself to belong to this this great line of, of great men sent by God to proclaim the new creation kingdom that was to come. This is not a new message, is it, friends? Elijah and Elisha, and, and we'll see Isaiah, they have been promising that a new world was coming that death was not invited to. There are a profound number of similarities between Acts 9 and 2 Kings 4 with the, uh, Elisha and the Shum, uh, Shunammites' uh, son. He asks in that case too for the people to leave the room and he, and he prays. It's, it's, it's almost identical what Peter does here. And again, to to this miracle in Acts 9, the people are one to the Lord. It became known to them throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Verse 42, the people are believing on a Lord who was raised from the dead and a Lord who raises people from the dead. They are believing on a king who has created a kingdom where life reigns. Do you see the picture of the new heavens and the new earth here, friends? This picture is given to the early disciples So that they knew what Jesus did really did something for them. That there really was a kingdom unlike this world where death would be no more. Independence was not only declared, it was one. Independence from death was declared at the resurrection and it's proved it's one. A new kingdom has been constituted. He has secured for them what Isaiah predicted, 51 11, And the ransom to the Lord will return and come designed with singing. Everlasting joy will be on their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing. will all flee away. It's a world where there's no disease, no crippling ailments that make you wonder, Why am I even here? Is life even worth living? Chronic pain can do that to you. Some of you know that in more uh, acute ways than others. Other things can make us feel as though we'd be better off dead. The discouragement of broken relationships, spurned love, the injustice that perhaps we received at the hands of others, uh, the violence we see in the world, difficulties at work or finances or family, it, it, the list can go on. There are all sorts of things that seem to suck the life out of living, but not in the new world not in the kingdom of the resurrection. There everything will work as it is intended to, and toil and frustration and despair will be no more. It's a world where every need is met. Uh, in First Kings 17, Elijah raises uh, a widow's son, and he's giving to a bereaved mother not only her love back, but also her security in that world. Uh, to not have a son to care for you is deathly in a similar way look at verse 41 peter gave tabitha or his hand to tabitha raises her up and then calling the saints and widows he presents her alive who does he give her back to the widows the widows who had so required and and were dependent on her ministry every need is met in the resurrection kingdom and again it makes us think of the ministry of jesus will you turn with me please in your bibles Put your heads down. Open up your scriptures. Let's turn there in closing Luke chapter 7. And read along with me this wonderful account. Starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, verse 11. He went to a town that is Jesus called Nain and his disciples were with him. Peter's there. And a great crowd as well. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died, was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. The text emphasizes that this woman had nothing if she did not have her son. It's her only son, and she's a widow. And it's as though the whole town has come out to see this tragedy take place, not just the death of the young man, but the death of this woman too, because without a son, without a husband, well, you might as well be dead in that society. And so when Jesus raises this man, and we are told Jesus gave him to his mother, he is giving giving her more than her son. He is giving her her future. And that's the resurrection for us as well. That's what it does for us. In the resurrection, Jesus Christ has given to us a future. He's given us a guarantee that all of our needs will be met. He's telling us that nothing, not even death, can keep us can keep him from meeting us or meeting all of our needs and and, and fulfilling in us all of our desires and making us fully happy and holy in his kingdom. And these various resurrection accounts in scripture, whether it be by Elijah, Elisha, uh, Peter, or Jesus himself, were given a window into the world of tomorrow, the world of heaven. These people, they believed the people who saw these resurrections, they believed. The people who, who, who were blessed by them themselves, they, they believed, and now they're no longer afraid. Well, think of, think of our, our dear disciple, Tabitha, brought back from the dead. Oh, she would go on, of course, to die again. And this time, surrounded by her friends on her deathbed, she would say to them, I have no fear. I know what's going to happen. I've kind of got a taste of it already. And yet I know and I believe that this time it's going to be better than the first because what are we told? In Acts, we're told that when Peter speaks to her, she sits up and she sees Peter. She says, I know though, this time when I die, the first sight I see will be the face of my Savior. We think of Jairus' daughter who experienced death at just 12 years of age, her first death, her first rescue from death at 12 years of age, and we can imagine her uh, growing up and going on in life and, and perhaps marrying and have children of her own, and as she gets older, Jairus himself would, would die, and then probably her husband. Men died first in those days, as is, which is still common today, and And then now it's time for her to pass away as well. And her children have surrounded her deathbed. And she says to them, well, I'm not afraid. I've been here before. She did see Jesus when she woke up. And she says, and I know the first voice I hear will be the voice of Jesus. And he will say to me again, Talitha kumi. That's what Jesus will say To all of us, this is why we don't need to fear death. Again, think of Peter. Decades after the events of Acts 9, his death would come, hanging upside down from a cross, as we are told in Fox's Book of Martyrs, to to respect the Savior, not wanting to die in the same way. But but what a painful and excruciating death. What reason, though, would he have to fear? He has seen with his own eyes, time and again, the world that he's going to. He's seen it with Lazarus. He's seen it with the widow from Nain. He's seen it with Jesus himself, and Peter saw it and was instrumental in it with Tabitha.